What's going on, guys? In today's podcast, I'm going to do a combination of uh, some fantasy talk, but I'm going to begin it with just some around the NFL notes and kind of things that are going on. I want to touch on those because I think there there are some important um, little things going on right now. Like, let's start it off with the the Indianapolis Colts, Carson Wentz and Quentin Nelson out a projected five to 12 weeks with foot injuries. Now that right there, the first thing that pops into my head, and again, you know I'm not a doctor, but the first thing that pops in my head when you say a timeline of five to 12 weeks, that means to me, again, a layman, that it could be something relatively minor, right? Or not not necessarily minor, but something that's not that huge of a deal, right? For five weeks. Or it could be something major because three months is, you know, that's 12 weeks. You're, you're out for three months. That to me, I mean, that to pretty much anybody is a relatively major injury. You know, it's it's not quite up there with like a torn Achilles or something like that, but it's in that sort of, it's closer to that than it is a little ankle sprain, right? So those two guys in particular, Carson Wentz and Quentin Nelson, I mean, they're very important, right? And who are they most important to, at least as it pertains to fantasy football? Well, maybe aside from Michael Pittman, that answer is my guy, Jonathan Taylor. Okay, so these guys, and, and by the way, I did the math on this, it would be about seven to eight games that that Wentz and Quentin Nelson would miss on the high end, right? So that's a possibility is that they miss basically half the season. Not good. What does that mean for Jonathan Taylor? So it means it obviously matters first and foremost. It matters, okay? Because even though this Colts offensive line is still very, very good, even without Quentin Nelson, that is a big piece of their running game. I mean, he's Nelson is obviously great everywhere in terms of like he can free up space as a blocker. He can he can pass protect. He can do everything right. But it's also just <clears throat> um, Jonathan like that offensive line without Quentin Nelson and without potentially to start the season, at least Eric Fisher goes from great to just good, in my opinion. Right. So that's that's anytime a running back has a you know, decline in offensive line, it means something for his overall production. I mean, that's just common sense. And without the quarterback play there and Carson Wentz to kind of alleviate some of that. And when, when you have a veteran quarterback, it does certain things. And this is why I think Cam Newton is going to basically hold on to that job all year long in uh, New England. When you have a veteran quarterback as opposed to a guy that's never done it before, like Jacob Eason, who I very much like, that it's it could be tough. Okay, Um, there are just certain things that are going to be slower on the on the come with a with a young guy. So I still like Frank Wright calling plays, even with Jacob Eastnet quarterback. I think that's still a strength. And did you hear Philip Rivers is not ruling out a return? It's almost like this Wentz injury happened and Rivers is like, you know what? I still I think Rivers was already getting that itch, but was basically not going to say anything. And then this happened and it's like, hmm. I'm totally willing to get off the couch and go play. I think Philip was coaching high school football somewhere in Alabama, but point is he's he's obviously getting that itch, so that would be great, and that would be actually an almost an upgrade for Jonathan Taylor from the standpoint of catching passes because Philip will love to dump the ball off, especially at this stage in his career. But when you lose a quarterback, starting quarterback, it's going to hurt your running back. That's just the way it goes, right? A lot of people, you know, there are some people, I should say, that think that, 
oh, no, when you lose a quarterback, you know, that means more carries for the running back. Like, it's not always that simple. And more carries does not always mean more production. It could mean less. It could. I mean, look at Joe Mixon the last couple of years. He's been able to basically not even average four yards a carry because he hasn't had a great quarterback or even a good quarterback in a lot of that time. So I think that a lot of this will be masked with Frank Wright, especially early on. But in terms of Jonathan Taylor, how it affects him for fantasy, I can't have him as my RB4 anymore. I can't have him ahead of guys like Saquon, um, Nick Chubb, you know, um, Aaron Jones. I can't even have him there. Aaron Jones is, I believe, my RB9. Don't know if I can have him as my RB10 ahead of Austin Eckler. But as of now, I will say he is my RB10 or RB11, somewhere in that range. And that's also considering Cam Akers is gone. So it's, if he was RB10, he'd still be after Eckler, right? So that, that And I think he'd be right ahead of Clyde Ebersley-Lair, who is my RB12. So it's it sucks, but there is some reason for optimism. Number one, if uh, Jacob Easton is a starter, he is extremely talented. And just so you know, I had him rated above Jordan Love coming out of college. I thought he was better than Jordan Love. I thought that Jacob Eason had the second highest ceiling, if I recall correctly, after Justin Herbert. A lot of people, like I said that the other day on Twitter, and I got killed by a lot of people in the comments section of the Rappaport's tweet, or maybe it was Schefter's tweet, one of them. And people were like, no, he only has a strong arm. He's not mobile. He's not this and that. Like, dude. Only having a strong arm, we got to stop with that bullshit excuse. The man has an elite arm, elite, much better than Philip Rivers, and which is what they had last year. And it may just be the perfect storm. The reason I'm saying that is because there's a guy named Patrick Mahomes, right? You may have heard of him. He plays quarterback for the Chiefs. He was a big-armed, you know, um, high upside not really a high floor kind of prospect coming out of college. When he went to Kansas City, he sat behind a guy named Alex Smith for one year, and then he took over as a starter. The silver lining here in terms of if you want to get optimistic about Jacob Eason, he sat behind a guy named Philip Rivers, right? And I think Philip and Alex Smith are similar in that they're both legit veteran quarterbacks. He got to sit behind that guy every single week and just watch and learn. Now, because of the timing of this injury, it's happening in such a way that it's going to maybe, if they don't sign Philip Rivers, which I would still prefer, even though I like Eason, it may give Eason enough time as the true starter in terms of like practice reps and things like that to be at least competent. I'm not going to call him the next Patrick Mahomes, but I mean, it could certainly be, it would not surprise me one bit if he has, let's just say, a Trevor Simeon rookie season. Do you guys see? Or maybe he wasn't a, Simeon wasn't a rookie at this time, but he had a really good first season at least for the first eight games or so. And I think that is very much a realistic scenario for Jacob Eason. I mean, he's going to have the element of surprise, which all first year rookie quarterbacks have because there's no tape on him as an NFL quarterback. He's going to have the advantage of a good scheme, still a good offensive line good play caller and Frank, right? Some decent weapons around him. So all hope is not lost, but in terms of like where I'm going to have Jonathan Taylor because of this, it's going to be RB 10 or RB 11. Now that's just the unfortunate reality of it. Because again, if we draft for floor while being cognizant of the ceiling, 
I think RB 10 or 11 is, is a generous spot for Jonathan Taylor to still be. And um, I'm hoping for the best. All right. Next thing I want to talk about is the Minnesota Vikings. They say goodbye to cornerback Jeff Gladney. So Gladney was entering his second season as a first round pick last year. And by the way, on this week's episode of draft picks are overrated, you know, the, I believe Gladney was the first round pick they got in, in exchange for Stefan Diggs. And if he wasn't, it, it was essentially the same, right? Because the Justin Jefferson might've been that pick, but he was like two picks earlier. So, you know, you may get a Justin Jefferson with that first round pick. You may get a Jeff Gladney. And unfortunately, Gladney started to play pretty well down the stretch last year. But I mean, you know, we all know what happened there. If you don't know, he like beat up his girlfriend or allegedly beat up his girlfriend. And I guess after the indictment came out, the, the team just said that's enough for us to, to cut ties. So that's two first rounders from just last year that are not on football teams as of now one year later. So again, Gladys, I know was not performance necessarily based, but it was all, but it was a range of outcomes with any rookie. And that's why I still would rather have a proven commodity like Stefan Diggs than a flyer like Isaiah Wilson, Jeff Gladney in the first round, because those things are always possibilities, unfortunately. Okay, next thing is uh, my Carolina Panthers had some news. Their uh, fourth-year receiver Keith Kirkwood got hit in the head by an undrafted rookie free agent in uh, JT eBay. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. So first and foremost, Kirkwood is okay. I don't mean to sound you know, uh, weird when I say it's just a concussion, meaning he's not paralyzed. He's able to move his hands and uh, – I'm sorry, his arms and legs, and he doesn't have any pain in his neck. So – that's good news. That's great news. That's the most important by far news. He's okay. I will say the Panthers released the, the undrafted free agent kid. The kid obviously came out and said he's, it was not intentional and he feels horrible. I don't like releasing him. I don't like, it's almost feels like cancel culture esque, right? Like, Oh, you did bad. We cut like, dude, first of all, it was an accident. He's out there competing his ass off for a spot second of all i think it could have been a good team building um exercise to rally around him we you know he feels like shit rally around him and build like you know prop him up don't just cut ties and get him out of there prop him up let's build it let's let's all show love to each other it's a brotherhood on a football team you know that kind of that's that's my preference, I guess you could say, in this scenario. Let's turn it into a positive and let's rally around him and Kirkwood. We know it wasn't. It's just football. It's, I saw the hit and from the angle that I saw it on, it didn't look as bad as probably what it was. But either way, it was an accident. The kid didn't want to hurt Kirkwood. He's just trying to make a play. He's just trying to survive on an NFL roster. You know, so I don't like I don't like that. Just my own personal thing. The Giants had a uh, brawl at their training camp yesterday and Joe Judge was furious. And I understand that. But listen, here's the thing about Dave Gettleman with the way he builds teams. He always says, I don't want guys that want to win. I want guys that hate to lose. When you have a bunch of highly competitive dudes out there, anything could happen, right? One one guy takes an extra shot late at, their, at one of their other guys. And next thing you know, it's a trickle down effect. So I'm not worried about this if I'm a Giants fan 
I think that it's actually okay because you want that kind of competitive nature, right? You want that kind of, um, obviously you don't want fighting. It's not my point, but you want them to care. And if they can care to the point where they're getting into all out brawls at the expense of having to run extra sprints or whatever it was, the punishment was, you know, then I think that ultimately it could be a silver lining. I always reference the Carolina Panthers back in 2015, the training camp, everybody was like, Oh, it's a big deal. Cam Newton and Josh Norman get into a fight. It ended up being a great benefit to the team, you know? And I think that, that's just the way these things are, man. You know, a lot similar to what I just said about the Panthers, they should have rallied around eBay. You can turn things like this into a team building positive moment. And I think that's what the Giants will do. And because I think their culture is strong enough to do so. And I know Daniel Jones was allegedly at the bottom of the pile or whatever. That's hilarious to me. You know, I'm cool with it, man. I think that, uh, look, that kind of stuff, it's not, it's not necessarily good, but it can become something good, and that's my my hope, or my, that would be my hope if I was a Giants fan. All right, let's talk some fantasy. So I think these are some guys. I want to mention about five players that you may regret on not drafting at their current ADP specifically. Um, first guy is Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. I'm not going to get too deep into him because I've talked about Clyde a whole bunch, but I've said it many times, and I still believe this to be true. His ceiling is the RB1. If you get that guy... In the, at the top of the third round, you are going to – it's game-changing. It's absolutely game-changing because assuming you hit on your first two picks, now you've got three blue-chip players on your team, and that right there alone is enough to carry you into giving you a chance to win every single week. So Clyde, you know, if you don't agree with me that he has the RB1 upside, that's okay. I think we would all agree he has top five upside. And when if you don't – if you're not even sold on that, think about it. He is the leading running back in what is likely to be the best offense in football. Even if they only run the ball 30% of the time with Clyde, like if he gets 30% of the workload at running back, he's still going to catch passes. And he's going to average 15 at minimum touches per game. Last year, he averaged over 16, over 16 and a half. It's like 16.7. You give Clyde in a year where he should be better than what he was last year, 18 touches a game in that offense with a better offensive line than they had last year. You're talking about, like I said, the RB one upside. If you don't agree with that, I think we can all agree as top five upside. If he hits either of those, it's game changing at the top of the third round or even in the late second. Okay. Um, next guy, DeAndre Swift. DeAndre Swift for me is a guy that's climbing, right? He was not in my top 12, at least not in the first showing of that. And if I had to guess right now, I think he's going to be the one to replace Cam Akers in that top 12. DeAndre Swift can catch the football. We all know that, right? He had a bunch of catches even as a rookie. It's a very good sign because a lot of times it takes guys a, a year to get going as a um, young running back in the, in the passing game. Last year, DeAndre Swift in goal line situations had six touchdowns on 13 carries inside the five-yard line. He had eight touchdowns on 17 carries inside the 10. His offensive line has gotten better. They have not signed a, a veteran running back or a big guy to potentially take that workload from him, although they did sign, I know, Jamal Williams. I think that if you want to talk floor and ceiling with Swift real quick, floor 
is a 15 touch a game kind of guy that doesn't get the goal line carries on most occasions, but does catch enough passes and does have enough of a role behind a pretty good offensive line or what should be a good offensive line to be pretty, pretty good. Right. And especially when you consider their weapons at receiver, they're not necessarily loaded. It's not out of the realm of possibility, in my opinion, for him to be their second leading receiver, maybe even their leading receiver. But I, if I had to bet money on it, I would go Hawkinson Swift at two. So if he catches 60 passes, I mean, right, and then he carries the ball another 10 times a game, I think that's that's floor. Um, and that would be probably at minimum a low-end RB2 because you're just worried about the one last thing, touchdowns, right? How many how many touchdowns will he score? And that's kind of the, the one thing that will limit his floor a little bit. But he showed, and he's put plenty of tape out there, and I know it's a new coaching staff and all that, but he showed – that he can be very effective in short yardage goal line situations as a runner. So ceiling wise, I believe Swift has low end RB one upside. And again, if you get that guy in round three, it's absolutely crucial for your team. So yeah, I like DeAndre Swift. Like I said, he's probably going to replace Cam Akers in my top 12 somewhere. At least he'll be at least my RB 12 when it's all said and done. Um, okay, next guy I'm going to talk about is Kenny Galladay in the mid to late fifth round. Galladay in 2018-2019 with the Lions was basically a 70 catch for 1,100 yards and 10 touchdown guy. You know, that's in last year, of course, he had the injuries. But now he is healthy. And I say that with confidence because the, the Giants, if you guys remember, before they signed him and they gave him all this money, they put him through – like it was like two days worth of physicals. Like Giants fans were freaking out. Like, please sign the guy. They took their time. Dave Gutterman always says he's methodical. He was very methodical with that. And they they deemed him healthy enough to give a pretty good sized contract to. You know, same same average annual value that they gave Odell two years later. So it's even a better deal. But Kenny Galladay to me is the one guy in terms of, or the one receiver, I should say, the one wide receiver slash tight end in that offense that I think won't be hurt by the fact that they have so many weapons to throw the ball to. I think that that could limit Sterling Shepard as a legit fantasy option. That could limit Kadarius Toney as a legit fantasy option. Evan Ingram, maybe even. But it won't do that for Kenny Galladay because he's clearly the best player on that offense, at least from that from the pass catching standpoint, right? He's the best by far pass catcher you have. And I think that the intent of the team is to use him in that way because they went out and paid him a bunch of money. So Kenny Galladay to me, he, he has, I believe wide receiver one upside and you're getting that in the fifth round, right? So if you hit on that upside, it's absolutely gigantic. If you just want to draft him for floor, right? We know what the ceiling is, so we're cognizant of him. But if you want to draft him for floor, I think low end wide receiver two is his absolute floor. Like wide receiver, let's just say twenty two or something like that. Wide receiver twenty or twenty two, somewhere in that range, I think is his floor, because that would be like sixty catches, ten touchdowns, eight touchdowns, whatever it is. So Kenny Galladay is one that. I'm very intrigued on, and the more I think about it, the more bullish I become on him. 
another guy in the fifth round, mid to late fifth round that I'm really high on. And um, again, even more so every day that passes is Deontay Johnson. I think that when you look at Pittsburgh right now, you're looking at Najee Harris. He's getting a bunch of hype as he should. You're looking at, you know, Juju Smith-Schuster's rising up ADP. Chase Claypool's rising up ADP. But you know who is kind of getting left out in the cold? The guy that had 144 targets last year, Deontay Johnson. The guy that was clearly Ben Roethlisberger's preferred target destination. And the guy that in year one had 92 targets, was targeted 92 times. In year two, again, 144. Year three for Deontay Johnson could be gigantic. Claypool and Juju getting that extra hype means Deontay's even cheaper. All that matters and the most important thing that matters is that he's, in my opinion, the, the best route runner on that team. So he's and he's very talented, maybe the most talented guy on that team. And Ben loves him, clearly. We saw what happened when Ben loved Antonio Brown. You're going to get the ball, right? Like it's going to be early and often. What if Pittsburgh has a really good running game again? That means more one-on-one matchups for Deontay, and he's going to abuse most corners in the world if they're playing him one-on-one. Imagine if teams have to start stacking the box against Pittsburgh. They didn't have to respect the running game at all last year, and Deontay was still a force at times. So I think that if you want to talk about his ceiling, 100 catches for 1,100 yards and 10 touchdowns is kind of where I see him. Legit wide receiver one upside, top five to seven, you know, in terms of ceiling again. And then where is he as a floor? I think what he did last year is his floor. I mean, if you tell me the guy's going to get 150 targets, right, there's an extra game this year. I mean, that's a wide receiver too, no matter what. I mean, that's a bona fide wide receiver too. So you're getting a wide receiver two at minimum, in my opinion, in the fifth or sixth round. And for his ceiling, you're getting the top seven guy. So that is very worth it in that at that price range. And it's also one that if you draft them, and this is kind of the theme of this podcast episode, if you get one of these guys and you hit their ceiling, it's going to be huge, hugely beneficial for you. Okay, next guy I want to talk about is DJ Moore. Bring up my Carolina Panther again, right? So my, my Panthers, with Sam Darnold, that quarterback, the offense – should be better, right? If Sam Darnold is who the Sam Darnold truthers thought he was pre-draft and, and even now, in a very good scheme, good play caller, decent offensive line, and just a really good situation overall, then DJ Moore could be a wide receiver one. He's a positive touchdown regression. He had four touchdowns last year. He had So last year, DJ Moore, by the way, had 66 catches for 11, 11, 93 and four touchdowns. The average over 18 yards per reception. He is, like I mentioned, positive touchdown regression away from being a high-end wide receiver too, at minimum. I think he could be a wide receiver one, you know, wide receiver 10 or 12, something like that. Totally in the range of outcomes for DJ Moore, in my opinion. What did he do in terms of uh, his, what, what is he in terms of floor? Well, I think what he did last year is basically his floor, 1,200 yards and four touchdowns, maybe 1,100 yards and five touchdowns, whatever. But the, the point is you're getting a wide receiver two 
low end wide receiver two at an absolute minimum in, in this fifth or sixth round. And for ceiling, like, a, I mean, you're getting a high end wide receiver two, low end wide receiver one, maybe even mid range wide receiver one. I mean, if Sam Darnold is who we all thought he was, because Teddy Bridgewater, let's face it, guys, he didn't have a very good year last year. He wasn't great, right? If Sam Darnold is considerably better than Teddy Bridgewater, doesn't mean he has to be great, but if he's better than Bridgewater, which the Panthers think he is, most fans think he is, then DJ Moore could be a legit, I mean, a high-end wide receiver too, like, like I said, at minimum. But um, definitely I think wide receiver one is, again, within the range of real outcomes for DJ Moore. So it's all – the reason why I want to do this podcast, by the way, guys, is because when you, when you look back at previous teams that you've had, fantasy teams that have won – you can look back and say, man, the picks I made in rounds three, four, five, and six, the fact that I got that guy's upside, you know, or maybe, or, or I got that guy's ceiling, I should say, that right there is a gigantic, is an integral piece of the success of those fantasy teams. So in terms of constructing your roster, I think it's very important to get somebody like these guys, somebody that you view as this type of upside in these parts of the draft. And even if you don't necessarily love the floor, if your roster is constructed in such a way that you can afford to whiff on one of these guys, then I say you do it, man. So I know that seems sort of contradicting to, to my whole draft for floor while being cognizant of ceiling. But if you want to take a swing, a strategic swing at the plate for, for a ceiling, I'm not opposed to doing that as long as it's not in the first two rounds, or maybe even three rounds. If it's rounds five or six, I'm all for it. I mean, I really am, especially if you think that your team is very high floor up to that point, right? I think that right there is a crucial piece of it. So, um, so yeah, I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. And if you do, consider leaving a review, share it with a friend, and I'll see you guys tomorrow. Peace.